Hello, welcome to this edition of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round, and the theme of this episode is... Well, actually, that's just how Yoda would have described it. The theme of this episode is... So, I will say, uh, hopefully... The little bit of noise that there is is very uh, subdued and uh, sophisticated because we're in the Hilton. A different quality of noise in the Hilton. Um, so I'm going to, with that in mind and, and um, sound being an important element of today's interview, I'm going to ask my victim to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, it's Peter Howell you're talking to, and uh, my claim to fame is well, at least these, this is what people call. My calling card uh, is that I did the 1980 version of the Doctor Who theme tune and uh, quite a lot of incidental music beside uh, on quite a lot of adventures after that. But uh, people mostly talk to me about redoing the, uh, the theme tune and uh, how, we, how we managed to do it, really, from a standing start. Yes, well, it's an interesting... And I, I know very little... I'm, I'm, well, I know little about music apart from what it does to my ears. So you might have to forgive some of the phraseology of my questioning. I'm fascinated by that theme because it's the first one that breaks away markedly from what had gone before. There'd been variations, but they were very subtle variations. Um, and you're using you know, the, the very modern technology of the time. And yet, despite the fact it sounds as though there are electric guitars in there and all of that sort of thing. It doesn't, to me, sound remotely dated and therefore is a very good Doctor Who theme. So how did you... Di- I mean, you obviously... Co- well, did you have that in mind of making it timeless but using modern technology? And is that quite difficult to pull off? Uh, I, I think that's a byproduct of what was mostly on my mind and that's it. The very last thing I wanted to ha- happen was people would listen to it and immediately know how I'd done it. And so I was very careful to use lots of different sources of sound. In fact, I think I used every single thing that made a noise in the radiophonic workshop at the time um, for various bits of it, and a lot of tape techniques. And uh, the the bass line alone um, took about ten days um, because it's got lots of gulp sounds in it and all sorts of things, the, the notes leading up to the bass notes and things which you can only really achieve by turning the tape upside down and working in reverse and things like that in those days. Uh, these days, obviously, you wouldn't do that. But um, So it was quite painstaking stuff. So that, just the bass line took ten days. The whole project took about six weeks. Um, and that was my major concern that I just didn't want people to immediately know how it was done because one of the values of, of Doctor Who still remains is the mystery of it and the fact that it, it appeals to people's imagination and if in fact you're just delivering something they can immediately understand and, and work out how it was actually constructed then I don't think you're doing the job so that was what was on my mind at the time so. And how did that work with the visuals? Because I think... I think... The, the previous uh, uh, arrangers um, had, had had to deal with quite abstract or at least ethereal imagery of sort of time travel, whereas this is very much a, a, a much more literal space thing. Starfield, yes. I don't know, I think we're all led by what was new at the time, and I know the graphics guy 
was particularly interested in using different masks of stars passing from one to the other to give the illusion of, of travel. And, um, you know, everybody likes to use techniques that particularly interesting to them. I mean, I, I certainly like using the, the looping and reverse stuff. And so a lot of the extra sounds in, in the title music are actually sort of looped uh, tape sounds, especially towards the end. And uh, he was the same, really. And, and even when you talk about the end, there was such a debate about the fact that there is a whiteout on the end. The last few frames are pure white, because it's an explosion. And in those days, you had to actually get permission to do that sort of thing, simply because it just shows up the dirt in the frame. <laughs> so, when he first suggested it to his, his boss, they said, oh, you can't do that, no, no, we never do that, never have complete white. And he said, well, you know, it's an explosion and we just need... No, 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 and they went on like that. And in the end, um, they gave in because they had the track I'd done and it was clear that that was actually right for the sound. Uh, and he got away with it. But it's weird these days to even consider such things. But, uh, you know, it, it was his equivalent of tape noise getting um, dirt in the frame, uh, and which was very hard with a white frame. Um, and equally with me, of course, we were chasing tape noise uh, in those days, uh, tape hiss. And so a lot of techniques revolved around minimising the, the noise uh, in, in the recording. These days, of course, you don't think twice about it, and it's all digital, and it, it doesn't have that problem. And so, well, and also the, the, the other sort of major shift at this time, particularly with Doctor Who, was that prior to that, the instrumental music had largely been done by Dudley Simpson and a small uh, uh, yeah. conventional instrument. This was John Nathan Turner bringing the radiophonic workshop into it. So do you remember how, how he approached you and and, uh, and and also why? It seems now a no-brainer if you have a department that wouldn't have cost you any money on a low-budget show like Doctor Who, yeah. why it hadn't happened sooner? Well, I think one or two people might realise there was an attempt to do it sooner that had an outing in Australia for a very, very short length of time uh, and is... is uh, a valuable collector's item, I think, purely because uh, it, it went out twice, I think. That's the, uh, the Brian Hodgson the, kazoo the, version. The kazoo <laughs> version. Um, I mean, and in a way, I suppose that when I started doing this, I was only too aware of that problem that they'd had. Uh, and the problem was really to do with the fact that because you've got the latest synth and it does everything... Um, that doesn't automatically mean it's good. Uh, it, it, the ideas have to be good, and the ideas in that were fine. It's just that they were trying to show off a piece of gear. That's really what the problem was. The, the Delaware Big Synthy 100 was really their pride and joy, and indeed I used it on, on several occasions. Uh, the front of my astronauts track, the, the uh, sequenced front on that, that's Synthy 100. So we all used it here and there, but, but, but what came across to me was it's not a very good idea to play any sort of electronic music solely on one instrument because it has a very, very noticeable colour to it. And the, the Synthi 100, despite its, its 
barrage of, of oscillators and all the rest of it did always have quite a thin sound and it was actually rather a problem they had with that that even when they finished it and multi-layered it it still really was rather a thin sound as you say, kazoo version <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I started with that slight apprehension uh, which I suppose is another reason why I sort of decided to use lots of different sources for it uh, because they all have their different tonal colour and I used a Yamaha CS80 for the bass line, which was my fave instrument at the time, but I didn't fall into the trap of doing the whole title music on that one instrument. It was just the bass line. And then the Arp Odyssey was the Uiu, and uh, uh, Roland was the middle eight with that trilling sound. That was the automatic arpeggiator on that. You know, so there was there were there were lots of uh, different ingredients that went into it, uh, and I, I I think that um, when you asked me, you know, was I intending it to be sort of timeless? I think actually, when you're when you're doing something that's as as imaginative as that, it is likely to come out timeless. If if you st- a lot of people say. Isn't it amazing how Dad's Army still goes on these days? And somebody said, well, the reason is it doesn't seem old-fashioned because it was old-fashioned when it first came out. (laughs) (laughs) And in an odd sort of way, this was a version of a piece of music that started many years before, and people associate it with longevity anyway. And so I think there's a sort of timelessness about the whole idea of Doctor Who, actually, mm-hmm. and I think, in a way, it lends itself to that. Later versions of the theme, for the newer series, I mean, I, I, for me, and I, I would say this, wouldn't I, but for me, I just think it's a pity they don't go back to the score, the original. I went back to the score, and I just sort of rethought it from where it goes. A lot of the new versions are just like they got the Christmas tree effect. It's the old version with something else hanging on it. Uh, and, and for me, that isn't as good as actually just revisiting the whole idea, you know. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I'm glad you call them the ooey-oos, because uh, I said before that I'm not very musical, but that's what I call well, them Well, it's well. a technical term. What are you talking <laughs> <Yes>. about? <laughs> when people say, what do I think of the new Doctor Who? The arrangement, I say, too much Dudley Dum, not enough Ooey Yes, <laughs> I think. And uh, uh, Peter Capaldi is on record as saying, and no middle eight either, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, <do laughs> which you know, I agree with. Do you know why that is? Because um, Murray Gold did an interview and he said he, he worries about the middle eight because he thinks it sounds a bit like Do They Know It's Christmas? And he sort of has a point because it goes... I can sort of see where he's going with that. Yeah, well, he's betraying his young age, isn't he, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if, I mean, if Peter Capaldi is, uh, is campaigning, maybe we'll hear it. Um, so, but you didn't just do the theme, you did the... And, and, well, I, mentioned, you know, I mentioned Dudley Simpson, who'd, who'd done you know, very percussive instrumental music on the show for many, many yeah, years. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, it's on record, it was John Nathan Turner who, who came to you guys. So do you remember... Do you remember him coming to the workshop and were you excited about the idea of working on Doctor Who? Well, actually, it was a sort of... It's a secret meeting. I mean, the, the whole thing was covered in secrecy for a lot of the time because uh, it was... 
such an outrageous thing to try and do um, and you didn't want people to blow it out of the water before it even arrived so it was quite secret but I mean there is quite as I'm sure you're aware quite a history of new producers and executive producers wanting to be wanting to leave their mark somehow Uh, and it happens a lot Uh, I was asked on one occasion to do um, a remake of The Tomorrow's World the Johnny Dankworth uh, which I I refused to do actually because it was such a a, a fantastic piece I wouldn't dreamt of trying to do an electronic version of it but uh, I I think there often is this need amongst uh, producers coming in to actually for people to immediately tune in and say, oh, this is something different. There has been a change. And I think there's nothing more obvious than changing the title music, yeah. albeit same, same tune, different arrangement. And so he had, that was his general feeling, and he, he wanted it to, to be more modern. He, he didn't use many adjectives, but that was one of them. And there was a lot of discussion about what tempo it should be, and even then, I sort of got it wrong to start with, and it was too slow. And in fact, the version that everybody knows is in F-sharp minor. And in those days, you could only speed things up by speeding the tape up, which meant the pitch went up. So I originally played it in F, F minor. And the reason I played it in F minor was... Oh, the bass line, I've already said, is on the CS80, Yamaha. And the bottom note of the CS80 was a C. So you actually have dum-da-dum, da dum So you needed that bottom note to be a C. So the original key was E minor. Uh, and that would have meant that the bottom note would have been off the keyboards. <laughs> so it ended up as F. And then after that, it, we discovered that it was running. I, we felt it ought to be faster, because one of the things that we wanted to convey as soon as anybody heard it was this modern feel, and, and, and making it slightly faster was probably a good idea in that direction. So that's really how it ended up in F-sharp minor, which has really been a, a curse for all people writing incidental <laughs> music ever since, because they have to lead into it at the end of the episode. Of course. <laughs> Um, well, and uh, how did you find how did you find John? Because he's quite a controversial figure, and obviously this was his this was amongst the very first things he did when he took over as what turned out to be the, the longest reign a producer ever had on Doctor Who. Uh, he was great. No, I, I always got on with John very well. Um, I, I do like people who are, are prepared to trust you, you know, uh, and. and that doesn't mean that, that everybody is like that. John was very good. He would say he have, we'd have a long meeting and we'd discuss all sorts of things. I'd play him little bits of other things, saying, is, is there something in this that interests you? Uh, and we were discussing like sorts of music and things, just to be certain as to the, what feel he wanted. And I'm not saying that what I actually came out with was precisely what we originally discussed, but the the... the the beauty of it was that he, he would be confident in you and would leave the room and say, OK, great, look forward to hearing what, what you do, and he'd just leave you alone, uh, which is great. That's the best sort of producer. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I about, um, what was it? I think it was probably about three weeks later, 
that we had another meeting. I said, this is the sort of thing that's happening. And, and he liked it a lot. The bass line was in by then, um, things like that. Um, and it just progressed like that, you know. And it's not to say that it was just the two of us. I mean, I was actually constantly playing it to Paddy Kingsland as I was actually doing it because I wanted uh, um, a fresh pair of ears. And I, as I said, I just wanted to make sure that uh, I wasn't making a fool of myself, really, because it's quite easy to kid yourself that you're doing something that's all right. And uh, you're almost in denial, because you're putting in so much work, you know. And we're talking about really long days. And as I said, the techniques required quite a lot of application, quite a lot of time. And you sort of, sometimes, as I say, are in a bit of denial about whether it's actually a good idea or not. <laughs> and I often say, because I teach at a film school now, and I often say to my students, you do have to be prepared to say to yourself, this idea is no good, before you waste any more time on it. So it's, and that applies to everything creative. Um, and it's a discipline you've got to get into, but it's pretty hard when you're dealing with something as famous as that. Of course, of course. <laughs> but you weren't just doing the, the, the theme, I mean, and it's a, it's a, the leisure hive is, you know, it's, it smacks of the new, it's a very new visual style yeah. of the show, one well, yeah. that didn't sustain for a particularly long time actually, but you had a very ambitious director who, who told the story and it's often quite abstract to all yeah. visuals, and as a result it's a, it's a story that divides people I love it, I talked to Chris Bidmead about it and he has problems with its execution because of the way it tells the story yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, I mean you have to score that minute and a half of deck chairs at the beginning that's right <laughs> yes but, I, but it's a great one but you, I, I, I feel you as the musician have to fill a lot of gaps with that because he's not telling the story with words yeah I mean Love of Bigfoot was, was, was really trying to make a feature film <laughs> and that was great as far as I was concerned I was up for that <laughs> I quite enjoyed the idea and uh, you know uh, Lovett famously turned up with gigantic bags I don't know where, he always looked as if he was about to go to Scotland or something <laughs> <laughs> and he walked in with the enormous sort of portmanteau with him, in which most of his life was probably and, and he would be very very sort of um, demonstrative about you know, what was needed and everything but you know I, I, I really liked that I just thought it was um, Again, I think it was similar to what I've been saying about John Nathan Turner, really. Um, it's really nice when people have a lot of confidence in their ideas. Some people will come back after us and say, actually, that's not my sort of thing. But unless you go out there and have a strong idea and see it through, you never really know whether it was good or not. So you just... And I think, I think he was uh, very ambitious in that direction. So a lot of those sequences were... Um, you know, people often talk to me about the uh, the spaceship landing. Mm. You remember the uh, shuttle arriving? <laughs> yeah, yes. shuttle arriving, <laughs> which Dick Mills called a couple of poached eggs. <laughs> 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 a couple of poached eggs gradually getting closer, uh, <laughs> and uh, that, as you probably are aware, lasted quite a long time. That yeah. shot. <laughs> yeah. So it was just like sort of over to you, Mr. Composer. That was, as you say, some of it was actually put you on the spot. But I, I mean, I liked the challenge. I thought it was great fun. I enjoyed it. And there's a very long, a very long piece of music from you that's very dramatic. 
um, a bit sort of Mars Bringer of War the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the generator music at the end when mm. you've got all these figures marching yeah. through and it's perhaps yeah. quite yeah. a punch that it's great piece of music uh, I think a lot of people writing uh, adventure uh, film and television music would be the first to admit that Gustav Holst provided us with the most amazing palette of ideas. Uh, and even, I mean, I have to confess that one of my very first albums was Adrian Bolt conducting <laughs> The Planets. Uh, and it is very, very uh, influential in any sort of programmatic music that is trying to describe things. And, um, and also, I, what I loved about the host, and still do greatly, is, is the amazing changes of metre in it, which really aren't things necessarily that audiences say, oh, that, that's great, I love the way it changes from 4-4 to 7-4 and all the rest of it. They don't think like that, they just like the unpredictability of it. And I, I think all of that really interests me, and I, I, I play around with that a lot, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of very um, influential, st strategic ideas, ways to write music that is colourful and, and, and means a lot to people, I think. Is, is a, a lot of that comes from Gustav Holst, I think. Well, in your next one, you're, you're back at Doctor Who straight away with Meglos, and... Uh, uh, um, not straightforward circumstances because there's two incidental musicians yes. on Meglos. Yes, and neither of us can remember who had the flu. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, at least I know. Sorry, it was me that had the flu, but I, I couldn't remember. Uh, there was a lot of issues about when Meglos was actually done, and I'm not quite certain whether all of it was done at a stretch. It was done in two chunks anyway. But there isn't any doubt about the fact that I, I did get the flu and Paddy did do, I think, two of the episodes, was it? And yeah, I, did yeah, two. I think you did the first one and he did yeah. the last three. Yes. Um, and that's what happened. So clearly I, I, I went down with something after the first one couldn't do it. And actually that's quite that's scary. Uh, you can never have composers collaborating, really. I think even Lennon and McCartney uh, are an example of... <laughs> apparent collaborations not really being that and um, the only way to, for Paddy to do Meglos was to do Paddy was to do it his way uh, I did on one subsequent occasion on something different to Doctor Who take over from somebody but again you, you can't really keep very much of their ideas in what you're doing because one of the things that we were all there for was that we, we were original sort of creative originals and the the negative side of that is people like that aren't very good at collaborating yes. <laughs> I'm afraid <laughs> well yes what's the point of getting a load of mavericks if you all want them to do the same thing yeah so that's the problem well I'm talking of mavericks and then we're, I want to wind the clock back a little bit but it seems to be a, a thematic thing of this first season is that with, with Lovett Bickford on the Leisure Hive you had a director that never worked on the show again who had very bold ideas mm. and then you did Warrior's Gate which mm. had a director who never worked on the show again and had very bold ideas but is again a brilliantly memorable yes. and, and impressive I, story I did, uh, I did some signings the other day um, and it was strange actually you know, a couple of people mentioned Warrior's Gate in particular um, and it's one that sort of slips from my memory, I must admit. Um, I enjoyed doing it, but I, I tell you, the, the one that I particularly 
Well, I suppose if, if you were to ask me the ones that I really enjoyed because of being called upon to be a bit extra creative and original, I would say um, Five Doctors and Planet of Fire. Um, okay. Why those two? Well, Five Doctors was great because it had uh, such a variety of scenes in it that you could have many layers of different sorts of music interplaying with one another, which I really enjoyed doing. Planet of Fire was quite the reverse to that. That was through and through a very strong atmosphere that pervaded the whole thing, as far as I was concerned. And that was not surprisingly dry, dusty and volcanic. Mm. Um, and I used lots of shell sounds and, and not much reverb at all, so not much echo but not reverb. Uh, echo being repeated sounds but reverb sounding like a swimming pool. So not, none of the swimming pool sound at all. It was all quite dry and um, quite up front. So for me that was actually quite a different sort of challenge. So I rather enjoyed that. Uh, I, I and still the five like doctors I, it was always the one they showed at school when sport when sport was rained off all day. Oh yeah. And, and so <laughs> that that horn nice that horn sound. That, oh uh, yeah, the famous the, the, yeah, the Tower yeah. of yeah. is etched in my childhood. Yeah, yeah. Do you know how that was done? No. Well, one or two people oh. probably do know this because I this is not the first time I've said it, but in fact it's made from the sound of the HMS Queen Mary off a BBC effects disc. Uh, I got an effects disc of all the, the hooters of, of big ocean liners, and Queen Mary uh, won the day. That was the one that actually was quite a, a, a raspy, interesting sound, and I, I sampled it onto a keyboard, because um, we were just starting to use samplers in those days, so it was an early Roland sampler, and, um, and played with the sound they're often layered it, so in fact, actually, you're hearing the Queen Mary Hooter about two or three octaves up. So obviously, a lot higher in pitch. Um, but but I brought out all the raspiness of, of the original. Um, and somebody actually asked me whether it was a French horn the other day. And I, I thought, well, golly, if you were playing the French horn, you made a sound like that. I don't think you'd pass grade <laughs> eight somehow. <laughs> well, well, take us back, Peter, to the, to the beginning. What, what was, were you always musical? And, and, and is, is working for some, the BBC Radiophonic something you can aspire to do? Or what, what was the No, journey? I didn't actually. I, I didn't sort of sit at home as a teenager sort of looking at Doctor Who saying I want to be in the Radiophonic Workshop uh, I, I remember looking at the first episode and the arrival of the Daleks as well and, and that really awful moment when they discovered them discovered the slimy interior of the yes. Daleks uh, and I remember all that so I was a, a kid watching that but I never actually sort of thought that's what I want to do what I actually was doing was I, I was uh, playing in a not terribly good band that played a lot of shadows music actually so a lot of my early music education is through uh, playing shadows tunes which um, they have their people who like them people who hate them but but musically they were quite interesting and they were really good training ground for harmony and so a lot of my harmonic knowledge I actually uh, got from doing that and 
so I was playing guitar to start with. Um, and then uh, I got involved with an amateur dramatics a version of Alice Through the Looking Glass in Ditchling. Uh, there's very recently been a Radio 3 programme about it, actually. Uh, it was on about ten days ago, uh, where we actually went to Ditchling and, and, and walked around talking about it uh, and played something. Because actually the music that we did for Alice Through the Looking Glass ended up as an LP that is in fact quite a collector's item now. But for me, it, it was actually the first time that I ever did music for some other... <laughs> use, it's perhaps not the right way to put it, it's actually called applied music, in other words you're writing music that belongs to a, another story whereas up to that moment I'd just been writing folk songs and you know vocals, about half instrumentals half vocals, suddenly you're writing music that has to follow a narrative in other words the Alice Through the Looking Glass and looking back on it, that was the start of my career at the BBC, in a way, because it was like the training ground of, of everything that's followed, in the sense that you, you get a, a feel for writing music that serves a narrative. And yeah. I think that was the beginning of it, really. And so, what was the... But that didn't lead directly to the, to the BBC? No, no. Um, no, it's... My uh, career had a, a series of happy coincidences in it and, and I, all I can say to people is that as long as you're ready for them and you're good enough when they come along, you should do fine. Uh, I, I often say to the students, you know, don't, uh, don't imagine that all you need is coincidences, you do have to be good at something as well. But nevertheless <laughs> Alice through Look Alice was done in Ditchling Village Hall the lighting desk of Ditchling Village Hall was installed by the chief electrician of Glyndebourne Festival Opera. Now I didn't know that, uh, and I started off in the law. I, I was actually an article clerk. Uh, my father was a solicitor, and I thought I, well, I didn't really know much else to be honest. Uh, in those days, you know, there wasn't the sort of career information that there is around now. So I was sort of heading off towards the law, but I was still, you know, writing music. Uh, and things alongside, thinking that that was just a hobby, really. So off I go do the law, but do very badly at it, and in the end I give that up, and I look round for something to do, and I, I sent off 28 applications by post, as one did in those days, and the 29th was to Glyndebourne Festival Opera, because it was fairly local over in Lewis, and... Uh, um, I went for an interview, I actually got an interview, and it turned out to be... I, I was actually going in for a job as a very lowly assistant in the lighting department of, of the theatre. And uh, I went along for this interview, and the chief electrician noticed that I'd done some stuff in Ditchling and said, oh, I actually put the desk in, <laughs> in Ditchling Village Hall. And we had something in common to talk about, and I, I got the job. Now, when I was at Kleinborn, uh, one of the other guys on the stage crew um, wanted to make an amateur film. And uh, I agreed to write the music for this amateur film. And the result was a curate's egg, to be honest. Uh, it wasn't the greatest thing that he or I had done. 
nevertheless, when we were actually filming this film, shooting it, I should say, uh, BBC South expressed interest in the fact that it was being done, and they sent a camera crew, <laughs> this is so circuitous, <laughs> sent a camera crew to film us filming to make a piece for the six o'clock news. The sound recordist with the cameraman was about to retire. <laughs> it just goes on and on. And the guy who was doing our sound on the film said, oh, I'd love to do that, but I'm going to university in nine, eight, nine months. Um, and to cut a long story short, he did that job he actually was a sound recordist with that cameraman for those nine months and then recommended me to replace him. And so by all this circuitous route, I ended up as a sound recordist with the cameraman on BBC South. I still wasn't a full-time member of the BBC. I was actually like a freelancer tagging along with the cameraman. Um, but as you can understand, this was all adding to my CV, so that when I eventually decided, actually I quite like this BBC thing, uh, and I applied to be a studio manager in Broadcasting House, uh, that interview went quite well, because uh, my CV was starting to look interesting. And, to my absolute delight, there was somebody on the panel who was totally obsessed with Glyndebourne Festival Opera. <laughs> I so things go around in a circle. Domino, but, yeah, yeah, just, <coughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that's how I ended up in the BBC, really. But, I mean, all that time I'd been writing music. Um, I mean, I, the website doesn't exist any longer, but I did actually run a website at one stage um, with downloads of all the original music that we'd done. And there was over 100 tracks on the website of, of stuff that we'd done actually, when I say we, it's, it's myself and John Ferdinando. Um, we'd done before I joined the BBC, so even before the BBC, I, I, I was already into recording, which other people weren't so much. They, they loved live stuff, and there weren't quite so many of us doing recordings, and I think that's why it's sort of led on to everything else. You know. Because it had the technical yes, aspect too. of it yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, yeah, because I guess you have to be a good mixture of, of yeah. artist and engineer, I suppose. Yes, I think that describes it really. I mean, these days, people are much more inclined to be able to do that. But I think in those days, you were either a musician or an engineer, and I didn't feel I was either. I was. I what I rather liked was I, I loved creating sound pieces that used engineering which especially then was fairly clumsy metal boxes heavy things and the idea of making something creatively interesting and sometimes beautiful out of them actually really intrigued me I, I love that uh, and, uh, and I still do really that, that's, the, that's the driving force the fact that you actually can get something so um, virtual as a piece of music out of such solid bits of gear you know, mm. it's, it's rather fun really. In the next edition of Who's Round uh, in which he will announce what his charity is so spoilers because um, as you get two weeks worth two donations would of course be appreciated only if possible but every little helps as they say uh, and it's Oxfam.
who we have to thank for many things, including providing me with my wardrobe during my teenage years and actually a bit beyond that. But let's not go into that right now. Um, Oxfam.org.uk, Oxfam.org.uk. You can also donate by calling 0300 200 1300 0300 200 1300 or, yeah, or oxfam.org.uk and Peter would explain why that's his charity in the next edition. Um, thanks, and they don't often actually get thanks enough, to Phantom Films, for whom a lot of the guests uh, of Who's Round have been sourced via their signings that they do in Chiswick and they pass on letters and recommend me, bless them. Um, and say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm benign and won't kidnap anybody. And their recommendation has been enough to open a number of doors for me. So a great many of the people uh, you've heard in recent Who's Rounds have been thanks to Paul and Dexter at Phantom, um, who also um, publish and produce CDs and all sorts of stuff that you might be interested in. So please support them because um, uh, they do much of what they do for the love. And uh, it's all stuff that should interest you. All right. Uh, until next time, ta-ta. soon from Big Finish Productions. Things die. It's just what they do. All we know about the Daleks is that they are creatures of war. You are in our power! Every minute of every day, on every world, every galaxy, something dies. If Dr. Keller had never arrived on Arking ever, would this still all be happening? Crying over it is spitting into the wind. Death is natural. Yes. Surrender your targets to the Daleks immediately! When an off-world ship crashes into our ocean and they want to salvage something from it, what else could it be but a weapon? There comes a time in the history of all civilizations, worlds great and small, when something, some event, some disease, some war, tips the balance of things when even nature must look at the numbers and nervously catch its breath. And on those occasions, well, it's time to make plans. Why should I trust you? Because I am the master. What? The War Master, coming December 2017. Yes. Are you scared yet? Big Finish. We love stories.